All right, good morning. If you want to open up to Joshua chapter 9, we have three weeks left in the book of Joshua, which means we're going to get to chapter 12, and there are 24 chapters in the book of Joshua. So we're only doing the first half of Joshua in this series, and then Advent starts at the end of this month, which is Christmas season, which is crazy that we're here already. Um, And I, I... thought of this earlier, I just love fall in Phoenix when the color of the Starbucks cups change and (laughs) peppermint shakes come back to Chick-fil-A, like we have made it. Um, But yeah, so we we have three more weeks in uh, Joshua, and this is a series that we launched this fall um, called Get Ready to Cross the River, and looking at a new season for God's people where they're Um, They are uh, entrusted with a mission, and with that comes all sorts of challenges. We wanted to look at that for our time here as a church in this new season. Um, And so we've been following this story just chapter by chapter, and we end up here in chapter 9. And if you've been paying attention, you've heard the stories about when they cross the River Jordan miraculously. God heaps up the river. They move into the Promised Land. They win the Battle of Jericho miraculously. The walls come crumble crumbling down. Um, then they run into some resistance. There's a, a couple stories of uh, the ups and downs they go through with Aachen's sin and the Battle of Ai. Um, Tyler talked about that last week. And the story picks up today in Joshua chapter 9, and really there's two things I want us to ponder today, um, to ponder, to think about carefully. And the first is to ponder the way that we make decisions. Pondering the way that we make decisions. And the second is to ponder what this story teaches us about God, about who he is, about what he's up to, how he works. So ponder how we make decisions, the way we make decisions, and then what the story teaches us about God. Uh, Let's start in uh, verse 1, chapter 9 of Joshua. It says this, Now when all the kings west of the Jordan heard about these things, all of these stories we've been going through, The kings in the hill country, in the western foothills, and along the entire coast of the Mediterranean Sea, as far as Lebanon, the kings of the Hittites, and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, they came together to wage war against Joshua and Israel. So this story opens up with them in a predicament, the Israelites. And really, the story, they're in two different predicaments. The first one is caused um, because these kings have united against them. And there's this new reality uh, for them that these people have united, and they're willing to wage war. And the new reality comes because of the consequences of sin, of Aachen's sin that we heard of a couple weeks ago. um, Because up until this point, everything the Israelites are doing is succeeding. They're like undefeated, and it tells us that the people in the land, their hearts melt in fear, because they're like, we can't stop this, and, and they were like defeated before the battles would even start, and then with Aachen's sin, he's disobedient, he goes against what God has told them to do, he takes the idols, brings it back, hides it in the, uh, uh, the ground in his house, and then we find out that the Israelites get routed at Ai, and they figure out what's, what's you know, why did this happen, there's this... Uh, terrible punishment for Aachen, and, and they move forward. But this is one of the ramifications. All of the people that were afraid of them now are, think that, you know what, maybe if we stand up, these guys can be defeated. So there's this reality where people have united against them. And then the second predicament 
is the, the, the reality that they're faced with because of an unwise decision that they make. And that's what this story is about, an unwise decision that they make. So verse 3 talks about this other predicament. It says, however, when the people of Gideon, Gibeon, with a B, the people of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they resorted to a ruse or a trick. So they don't join these five kings and unite to fight. They go about it a different way. They come up with a ruse. They went as a delegation whose donkeys were loaded with worn-out sacks and old wineskins, cracked and mended. They put worn and patched sandals on their feet and wore old clothes. All the bread of their food supply was dry and moldy. Then they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and the Israelites, We have come from a distant country. Make a treaty with us. So there's a trick and a treaty. That's what I entitled this sermon, this trick trick or treaty. It would have been great last week if we planned that right, and I just didn't think ahead. So the Israelites said to the Hivites, but perhaps you live near us, so how can we make a treaty with you? It's against what their commands have been. They're not supposed to make treaties with people in this land. And then they said this, we are your servants, they said to Joshua. But Joshua asked, who are you? And where do you come from? And the ruse continues, verse 9. Your servants have come from a very distant country because the fame of the Lord your God. For we have heard reports of him, all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan. And our elders and all those living in our country said to us, Take provisions for your journey. Go and meet with them and say to them, we are your servants. Make a treaty with us. This bread of ours was warm when we packed it at home on the day that we left to come to you. But now, see how dry and moldy it is. We obviously are from far away. And these wineskins, they were filled, uh, were filled, uh, were new, but see how cracked they are. And our clothes and our sandals are worn out by the very long journey. So they have evidence of their journey. And it says in verse 14, the Israelites sampled their provisions, but did not inquire of the Lord. They sampled their provisions, but did not inquire of the Lord. This, should, this line like, should jump out at you. When you're reading this chapter, the whole chapter pivots on this detail. They sampled their provision, but did not inquire of the Lord. Then Joshua made a treaty of peace with them to let them live, and the leaders of the assembly ratified it by an oath. So they assess the situation, they believe the the ruse tricks them, they make a treaty, and they ratify it with an oath. So these Gibeonites, I don't like them. I don't respect them. They, like, I feel like, you know what, if you guys, like, Either, either surrender and join up with the Israelites or, like, fight them. Go join those armies that are trying to fight them. But, like, to do something so weaselly as this just rubs me the wrong way. And maybe that's, like, my personality. I just don't feel like I get, I don't like to get taken for, you know, a fool. And so when something like this happens, it really, really uh, upsets me. Um, and, and they do. They totally, like, they come, they show up, they're, they're clever. They play on the compassion and sympathies of the Israelites. They say, we've traveled from this far-off land. They also are very clever because they play to the ego 
of, of the Israelites. They talk about, we've heard of your fame. We know, like, you guys are, like, so great. We've heard of all the things your God does. And, and then they, they play to their ignorance. They, they have, like, actual, like, props that they have, you know, th- to show that they're from this long journey that they've, they've used to fool the Israelites. And sure enough, the ruse works. And, and they, uh, an oath is made, a decision to be in partnership uh, is made here by the Israelites. And it tells us that they did not inquire of the Lord. They just jump in. If anything, this is like textbook of how you should not go about making decisions because for the Israelites, they're probably coming off of victory. They're, they're successful. They're feeling like kind of high and mighty. Um, they, they think, well, you know, we, we can make this decision because these people are helpless. And, um, and so they just move forward with it. They fall for the ruse and they move forward with this decision. And then it tells us, verse 16, three days later, after they made the treaty with the Gibeonites, the Israelites heard that they were neighbors living near them. Three days later, that's all it took for them. Like, you have to think, why did they not just stop and, and use a little discernment, right? Like, I, I, I can't make decisions unlike what I want for dinner without thinking about it, like a, a week in advance. Like, how do you not take three days and just figure out who are these people? What are we getting into? What kind of an agreement are we coming to with these people? They just move forward, and within three days, they realize they've been duped. And they've, they've created an oath with the name of Yahweh to be in cahoots with these people. Like, I... How, how would I have responded to that? Like, I, I would have been ticked. And here you have the people of Israel. They haven't sought Yahweh, but they've made a decision which was a bad decision, and now they have to live with it. Now they have to live with it. Have you ever done something like that before? Had a little buyer's remorse? Made a decision where almost immediately you're like, that's not good. Um, one of my mentors... Uh, in ministry, used to have a little cadence of wisdom. He, he had a word of wisdom for me, and it kind of goes, had a cadence to it. He would say, never make a decision in the present that when it becomes your past will haunt you for the future. Never make a decision in the present that when it becomes your past will haunt you in the future. Like, be wise about how you make decisions. And because our decisions haunt us. This last week was Halloween, like, Like, as you're an adult, you realize, you know, like, ghosts aren't what haunt us, but our decisions are what haunt us. We make decisions that affect us in the present, and when they become our past, they haunt us in the future. And here's here's Israel doing that. They've made this decision. They've put themselves in this situation. They've ratified the oath with Yahweh's name, and now there's consequences they have to figure out. And here's what happens next, because if this happens to me, I'm furious. If this happens to me, I'm trying to, to get out of it. I'm trying to get revenge. I'm trying to make whatever I can to get out of the situation. But here's what they do. Verse 17, it says this. The Israelites set out, and on the third day, they came to their cities, to the Gibeonite cities. But the Israelites did not attack them because the leaders of the assembly had sworn an oath to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. So instead of going there and attacking them, the leaders say, hold on, we, we have made a decision here, and we have, we have sworn an oath by the name of our Lord. 
The story goes on. The whole assembly grumbled against the leaders, but all the leaders answered, we have given them our oath by the Lord, the God of Israel, and we cannot touch them now. This is what we will do to them. We will let them live so that the God's wrath will not fall on us for breaking the oath we swore to them. They continued, let them live let them be woodcutters and water carriers in the service of the whole assembly. So the, leaders, uh, so the leader's promise to them was kept. And then Joshua summoned the Gibeonites and said to them, Why did you deceive us by saying we live a long way from you? Well, actually, you live near us. You are now under a curse. You will never be released from service as woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God. I think it's interesting that part of their punishment is they have to do church work. Like, that's, that's what they have to do. Uh, verse 24, they answered Joshua, Your servants were clearly told how the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you the whole land and to wipe out all of its inhabitants from before you. So we feared for our lives because of you, and that is why we did this. Now we are in your hands. Do to us whatever seems good and right to you. You read that and you start to have a little sympathy for the Gibeonites. Like they're in an impossible situation. Verse 26, so Joshua saved them from the Israelites and they did not kill them. And that day he made the Gibeonites woodcutters and water carriers for the assembly to provide for the needs of the altar of the Lord at the place the Lord would choose. And that is what they are to this day. And this is the story. They're in this situation where they've been deceived, and they have to figure out, how do we now live with the deception? Because we have made a decision, and we have made an oath, and our God's name is on the line here. They have to figure out how to live in the deception, in a situation that is impossibly interwoven with this Gibeonite people, the complexity of the messiness of relationships. How do we live now after this deception? Jesus tells a parable in Matthew chapter 13, verse 24. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while he was sleeping, while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed seeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, and then the weeds also appeared, the owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in the field? Where then did the weeds come from? And he replied, an enemy did this. An enemy did this. The servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Jesus speaks of these complexities. The decisions we make that put us into a bad situation. It's like, sometimes we're like, why doesn't God just come and just fix everything? But we live in the tension of those decisions, and we live in the tension of the messiness of relationships with people. Because people are messy. And my guess is the older you get, you've probably experienced that. Like, I, I'm in a situation, there was deception, or I made a decision where I didn't seek the Lord, and now how do I navigate this going forward? 
What is life like in that tension? And Jesus communicates that, the tension that we live in. A couple things that I find interesting with the people of Israel here. They, they take this on in a way where they make a, they make a decision uh, without seeking the Lord. But their way to remedy the situation, they realize we, we have to actually seek the Lord through this. And as they show up, there's great wisdom that they show. And how do we navigate moving forward with the Gibeonite people? A couple things they do. The first is that the leaders, when they show up, when everyone else is there to break that covenant and to get revenge, they rightly assume responsibility for what happened. They take responsibility. They said, we did this. This is just, we're just as much at fault with how we went about this. We let them dupe us. We didn't do our due diligence. We didn't seek the Lord. We have to take responsibility because we have made an oath, and we have sealed that oath with Yahweh's name. And they knew that if they broke the promise, they would be liable to God's wrath since his name is involved in the process. And it's not just them that is breaking this oath. The reputation of Yahweh, who doesn't break promises, was on the line. And so they decide to be responsible and say, we'll take care of it. Be responsible. Responsibility. Um, Tyler has noticed that I use this phrase a lot responsibility. And I think it's like my phrase for my 40s, like turned 40 a a year ago. I'm like 41 now, I think. Responsibility is like my theme for the decade. I just think people need to be responsible. And (laughs) I think people like, what is your leadership style? I just want people to be responsible. What is your theology? I just want people to be responsible. What is your politics? I just want people to be responsible. Be responsible. God has entrusted you with all sorts of gifts. We live in an amazing place. Just be responsible with what God has given you and be responsible with the decisions that you make. That takes years of learning from my own mistakes. But here's what I have found. The people, especially the leaders that I am most inspired by, they are able to be responsible. They take responsibility for their failures, and they give credit to others for their accomplishments. There's a lack of ego, and there's a maturity there. Bad leaders, what bad leaders do is they take all the credit for their accomplishments or for accomplishments, and then they blame others for failures. But here the leaders of Israel say, we made this decision, we are going to be responsible. And even though we were duped, and even though someone else treated us poorly, it's not going to change our integrity. We made a bad decision with bad information, but we are now going to live with integrity. Uh, At the men's breakfast this week, Bill McClung put it this way, they did this because two wrongs don't make a right. Two wrongs don't make a right. And if you're in a hole, you don't keep digging. They start to figure out, let's be responsible for the decision we made, the situation we're in, and then how do we get out of it? Integrity means this. It means living wisely within the consequences of one's decision. Living wisely within the consequences because life is messy. And my guess is that your life, just like mine, has all sorts of these interwoven relationships, situations, circumstances, and you're trying to navigate it. But we're called to be responsible and be people of integrity. The second thing they do is they seek the truth. They want to know what's really going on here. And Joshua like sits down with the Gibeonites, and he's like, why did you, 
why did you tell us this? Like, why did you fool us? And then he realizes how much fear these people are in. And as he sits down and they have this conversation, he realizes, oh, they are in an impossible situation. And something happens. Not only are the Israelites at fault here, but the Gibeonites are as well. And the Gibeonites, they cannot escape the decision they make and their past and their new relationship with Israel until they come to grips with the truth of who they are. And as truth emerges and as truth comes into the discussion, there's new possibilities for a future for their relationship. As that truth emerges, only then can they move forward with new possibilities. And Joshua figures out, how do we get to the truth of the matter? Let's define reality. What's really going on here? And then it creates the possibility for a new future. And this is what happens next, is they imagine a new future. They imagine a new solution. And Joshua does this, the leaders do this, and they imagine a new solution by inquiring of the Lord through Scripture. This time around, they inquire of the Lord through Scripture, and we know that because of the details of the solution. Like, it doesn't come out and say they just inquire of the Lord, but what the solution is are details that come out of the law of Moses. And for the people of God, for the Israelites, for in the book of Joshua, they would have had the law of Moses with them. And they come to a situation where they're like, we're not sure how to navigate. Let's look at what our word, the God's word, tells us. So they go back to Deuteronomy 20. It wouldn't have been called Deuteronomy 20 at the time. But Deuteronomy 20.10 tells them how to wage war in a new land and how to interact with people who have come in peace. And then in Deuteronomy 29, verse 9 through 11 says this, Carefully follow the terms of this covenant so that you may prosper in everything you do. All of you are standing today in the presence of the Lord your God, your leaders, the chief men, your elders and officials, and all the other men of Israel, together with your children and your wives, and the foreigners living in your camps who chop your wood and carry your water. So they have a precedent for this of of people who are foreigners who are living with them, who've come into relationship with them. They have the job of chopping wood and carrying water, but what the primary need for wood and water was, was ministry in the tabernacle. That's interesting. Ministry in the tabernacle, they're, they're chopping wood for uh, the, the, the tabernacle, and they're bringing water for ritualistic cleansing. They don't have them just chopping wood for their campfire so they can make s'mores. This is specifically for the tabernacle, and they give them the opportunity to be in this role this new solution for them. Here's, here's one thing that, that God has been saying uh, through, throughout them moving into the promised land, that he, he's, I didn't free you as my people from slavery in Egypt to move into the promised land and be enslaved to the idolatry of the Canaanites. These, uh, these idols entrap people's soul, and they're incredibly toxic. They're toxic for relationships. They're toxic for for how you live your life, and I haven't freed you from the Egyptians so that you could be slaves to the idols of the Canaanites. And one of these things is when these people, the Gibeonites, decide to enter into relationship with Israel, they say, we're not only are we going to be in relationship with you, we're going to place you at our point of worship, at the tabernacle, because we know that you are caught up in these pagan idols 
that have entrapped your soul. And now you're going to be face to face with the place of worship of Yahweh. And this is where you will find freedom. They are very strategic about defining this relationship with him. And what you find is that they, they, they have a new, as, they, as they've gotten to this point where like, we're in this oath with them, we have to figure out how to live life together. They've duped us, they establish a boundary, and they define what that relationship's going to look like now, moving forward. And they've placed them where, where the worship of Yahweh is going to always be in front of these Gibeonites. So they are responsible, they seek truth, they come up with a new solution through their word. Proverbs 3 says this, let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart, then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your paths straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. So to ponder the way that we make decisions, like watching what happens in this really messy story, what you find is that we should make decisions when we don't lean on our own understanding, but we trust the Lord. We don't act rashly and we don't lean on our own understanding. We trust the Lord and we submit our ways to him to discern his will, to slow down and be a patient and discerning people. We do that through prayer. We do that through scripture. So this moment of the story, this first part, pondering how we make decisions, it is a story about dangers of deception. It's a story about the folly of not calling on the Lord, the importance of keeping oaths. Like all of these have consequences that they're trying to navigate. But also this story teaches us something about God about who God is, what God's up to, how he works. And what it's telling us is that he is a God of mercy and redemption. He's a God of mercy and redemption. And here's what I know, is that God saves people I wouldn't save if I were God. Like, I would be so ticked off at the Gibeonites for this. I've got people on my list that I'm like, I don't think I would save them. But God saves people that I wouldn't save if I were God. And we know this because of how the Gibeonite story continues through the Old Testament. Like the very next chapter, next week, we see that God starts to use this Gibeonite story to, to do all sorts of things. In Joshua chapter 10, the five kings that united against the Israelites, they go and they attack the Gibeonites. And the Israelites show up to defend them. And in this battle, one of the most powerful miracles of all scripture happens. It's the story of the sun standing still. The sun stands still, they end up winning this battle. And it's just this amazing, uh, amazing story of how the Gibeonites were used to display God's power. Right here in the next, the next chapter, they're used to display the power of the creator of the universe. Then we find in Joshua 21, we won't get to this because we're only doing the first 12 chapters. But Gibeon, Gibeon, the town they're from, it's named as one of the Levitical cities, which meant that the priests lived there. And it guaranteed that the inhabitants would have firsthand knowledge of the sacrificial system. So the Gibeonites were used to extend and enhance worship of God in the Old Testament. 
Then we find in 2 Samuel 21, Israel finally has their first king, and it's Saul. And Saul makes all sorts of mistakes, but one of the things that he does is he, he breaks this oath with the Gibeonites. It's been 400 years. You think like 400 years later, he'd get away with it. And he breaks the covenant, and he slaughters a bunch of the Gibeonites, and it tells us that God responds by sending three years of famine. God, the Gibeonites were used to show God's faithfulness and promise-keeping. God is a God who keeps promises. This is what was on the line when Joshua and the leaders said, we have, to, we have to keep this oath because God keeps promises. Then in 1 Chronicles 12, one of David's mighty men, one of the great warriors who's in command of his army is Ishmael, the Gibeonite. And David puts him in the tabernacle, one of his mighty men. When Solomon goes to offer sacrifices at a tabernacle, um, and he, he's asking God for wisdom. That tabernacle is set up in Gibeon. In 1 Kings 3, Gibeons were used as a place to seek wisdom from the Lord. And then fast forward even further down the road. When the Jews are returning from Babylonian captivity, Nehemiah records that 95 men of Gibeon were among them in Nehemiah 7. And when Nehemiah rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem, a thousand years after this first story of the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites helped construct that wall. Gibeonites were used to show God's grace over the long haul. Their life has been redeemed and given purpose in God's story. Gibeonites were used to show God's redemption story in the Old Testament. He saves people that I wouldn't save. There's one final thing. This deception actually it strangely echoes and parallels Genesis 3, when the devil deceives Eve. And even some of the language that's used in it has a strange echo of, of the evil one. And like Jesus says in the parable, an enemy has done this. That there's this evil one in this world that leads us away from God to kill and steal and destroy. And how does God deal with the devil's devices? Here's what David Jackman says in his commentary on this passage. He says, God, he uses human agents to keep the altar fires in the temple burning and to keep the water well supplied for the cleansing rituals so as to continue, increase, and extend Israel's worship of the living God. The very thing the enemy planned to destroy is preserved and enhanced by God's overruling providence. This does not provide an easy excuse for our failure and sinful self-confidence. But it gives wonderful hope to those of us who are only too conscious of our past mistakes and weaknesses. This is the glory of Yahweh. He cannot be outmaneuvered by human cunning or hindered by human fallibility. That glory is shown in the grace that can turn a curse into a blessing, that can use our mistakes and foolishness to bind us more closely than ever to him that can reveal where we went wrong and make it become the means by which we begin to go right. He is the hero of this story. The Gibeonite story is our story. And we don't like to do that because we always like to identify with the good guys in these stories. But if, if God's mercy and redemption are good for the Gibeonites, it means that his mercy and redemption are good for us, for me, for you. And this was the theme when they started to understand what this gospel message was about in the New Testament. 
Paul writes this in Ephesians 2. Therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenant of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We have been brought near by the blood of Christ, by the cross. If the Gibeonites could receive grace and mercy, you and I can as well. What does this story teach us about God? Is that he is a God of mercy and a God of second chances, and he takes our stories, our failures, our complex situations, and he redeems them. And he fills them with purpose. And that's the story that we get to live into. So today we're going to close our time with communion and prayer. And as we get ready for communion, what this communion represents is this story of the gospel. That God became man, took on flesh and blood, and walked on this earth. As we've been going through this story of Joshua, there's some just terrible passages that we run into. And we get to these passages, and it it doesn't say like at the end of the passage, and then God said it was good. Like what Joshua is communicating to us is the brokenness of the world that we're in, the messiness of this world that we're in. Joshua and so much of the Old Testament is saying, this place is in need of a Savior. And there's this anticipation that a Messiah would come. As we get ready for Advent, this, this holy anticipation of a Messiah, of the Christ, of Jesus, who would come into the world to free us, to save us, to bring us salvation. And this message of the gospel that we, we remember with gratitude and we proclaim is the fulfillment of that anticipation, the cross. So we take a piece of bread that represents the body of Christ that was broken for us. We take a cup of juice that represents the blood of Christ that was shed, that was poured out, that washes away our sin. And as we take that and we receive that grace, we are reminded of this story, of this proclamation, that a victory has been won. Today, if you're followers of Jesus, we invite you to that table. And maybe today in this time of prayer and reflection, you're in a situation that feels impossible, that there's been a deception and it's, it's this interwoven, complex, not sure how to navigate it. And maybe today you just need to come to God for discernment and prayer. We have a prayer wall over here on my left, on your right, and we just invite you in this time to write out your prayers to God. If you're comfortable putting it in there, we'll have people this week pray for your situation. Because life is messy, it's not easy. And maybe today you've never come to a point where you've experienced that redemption from Jesus. We want to invite you into this new reality where he, he takes our mess, our sin, our brokenness. He takes it to the cross, and he offers us new life. And that new life is offered for you today as well. We're going to create time to respond to this. Um, but I want us to rise and to recite the Lord's Prayer. This world that we live in is not as it should be. And Jesus teaches us to pray. And as we head towards the communion table, as we head towards a time of prayer and reflection, 
Let us read these words of the Lord's Prayer together. Join with me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. There's communion set up on both sides of the room. There's one in the back as well. The prayer wall is open if you'd like to spend some time in prayer. Let's take this time to worship and reflect.